This podcast is brought to you by Trend. Trend is a micro-influencer marketing platform that helps connect brands with influencers. Learn more, join our network, or start an influencer campaign at trend.io. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DTC pod. I'm your host, Jay. And today I'm joined with our CEO, Ramon, and a very special guest that we have, Sonia Nagar who is a founder and a former investor of e-commerce brands, direct-to-consumer brands. Sonia, we're super excited to have you on the podcast to talk about your brand, Little Rituals, and talk about your experiences going from an investor to a founder as well, um, which I think is really cool. We've never had anyone on the podcast to kind of cover that topic. So Super interested to dive in, but before I keep rambling on, I'll go ahead and pass the mic over to you if you want to give a little intro to the audience and tell them kind of about yourself, what you are doing at Little Rituals, and yeah, go ahead. Sounds good. Thank you, Jay and Ramon, for having me on. So hi, everybody. I'm Sonia Nagar. I have had a very varied career, so I've done a lot of things. I started off as an engineer and then... Went to business school, did a brief in investment banking, was at Amazon back in 2008 when it was a much smaller company as part of the team that launched the clothing category. And then coming off of that, I was getting married and my husband was in New York. So I'd moved to New York and I founded in 2011 a mobile shopping startup called Picky that was basically putting catalogs onto the iPad. That company was acquired by Retail Me Not, which was a public company out of Austin in 2014. And post-acquisition, I ran Retail Me Now's mobile team and then kind of bigger group of their product and engineering team. And when my earnout was up, my husband and I at the time were in New York and Austin, which wasn't sustainable. We were from the Midwest, but had never lived in the Midwest as adults. So we kind of just decided we wanted to get closer to family and start our own family. And so we bought a place in Chicago. I thought I was going to start another company based on my experiences fundraising the first time around had decided that I needed to get to know all the different funds in Chicago before I had to ask them for money. So I started meeting with the different funds. And one of them happened to be the Pritzker Group, which is a fairly large fund here in Chicago. And they liked the way I thought about the world. And I didn't yet have a specific idea that I was going to go out and build, but I had a lot of ideas around where the opportunities were in consumer. And they liked the way I thought about things. So they asked me if I'd ever thought about being an investor. That was five years ago. So for the last five years prior to founding Little Rituals, I've been investing at the Pritzker Group, which is a fairly large fund. So we did multi-stage investing, anything from $500,000 checks to $50 million checks. And it was an amazing place to learn. have about a dozen deals that I led through the fund and then another deals that I invested in personally as an angel investor. And then fast forward to this year, there were some changes in the fund. And so I was transitioning out and COVID was happening. And I started to really think to myself, what do I want to do with my life? Do I want to be, you know, continue being an investor? Do I want to build something? And it felt like building something was the right answer. At the same time, I have two kids. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And for my four-year-old especially, it felt like we had this gift of all this time together because I used to travel a lot for work and I was working long hours. And I wanted to build something with her. And so all of this kind of came together in like March, April. I was sitting down with her and we were quarantining at the time with my parents. And she were a tea obsessed family. She was watching us have tea four times a day. 
And for us, it's more than just a beverage. It's like a love language. It's like our moment to connect and sit down and have a conversation. And she wanted to participate, but she was obviously too young for caffeine. And I didn't really want her to have a bunch of sugar. And so we started doing these organic home blends. And that eventually became our first product at Little Rituals, which is kids tea. And so the mission behind Little Rituals all about helping parents and kids connect and enjoy everyday moments together. So all of our products are designed to help parents easily do that. Um, The tea is one example. It comes with a little gratitude journal and kids can decorate their tea tags. So it's an activity in addition to being a beverage or more of an experience in addition to being a beverage. And then we also have supplements, which are my daughter's other favorite thing are her gummy vitamins. She takes them every day. And so we have elderberry and melatonin gummy vitamins for kids. That's really cool. I think your daughter might be the youngest founder of a CPG product <laughs> yeah. that I've heard of. Uh, yeah. We need to have her on next. <laughs> I yeah. know. You know it's cameo because she's home from school today. And so I can't predict when she's going to pop in and out. So there is like a 50% chance that my four-year-old co-founder will come and tell you all about it. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. So given your experience in helping to fund other e-commerce brands and like your experience in venture capital and all that stuff. What do you think has kind of like translated over to what you're doing now and what you're working on now? Is there any ideas that you've kind of taken from what your experience is there and then kind of implemented into building and growing out little rituals? Yeah. So the number one thing is definitely the network. One of my biggest lessons learned when I was a founder the first time around was um, it was so hard to hire people or to know who to hire or who to work with as a contractor, even as a first-time founder. And I, it felt like you raised money, like I raised a million dollars from venture capital with my first company. And then all of a sudden I had to go hire people and hire contractors. It took me forever and I made a bunch of hiring mistakes and did a bunch of things wrong. And so ever since 2011, I've been kind of tracking interesting people and I pay attention a lot to like who's really good. And even if I don't know how I'm going to work with them in that moment of time, I try to be helpful to people to help them connect with other companies. So over the last eight, nine years, even before venture, but then definitely in venture that kind of supercharged my ability to spend time helping connect people. I got to know a lot of people and I got to know who was good. I got to plug people into my companies that I'd invested in and really see what they could do. So with little rituals, when it came time to find people to help me with the branding and design work or contractors to help me with managing the paid marketing spend, I had a leg up because I already knew who was good. So that was one of my biggest lessons learned that I did terribly with my first startup and then have been trying to correct ever since. Is like you are always hiring when you find good people, keep them close. And if you can help them, even if you don't know how you will work with them, like just try to be as helpful as you possibly can. Yeah, I mean, I think DTC, especially to an e-commerce, it's like it's still so early that it's not like software where you can go into G2 and you can instantly weed out a thousand platforms into the top five. Whereas with e-commerce and direct-to-consumer, you know, you choose the wrong packaging partner and that set you back 500K. And it all revolves around information. And that became a big awakening for us as well after being on this podcast for a while. It's like, wow, you know, information is still, you know, one of the most valuable resources in e-commerce just given to how early it still is. Yes. And that's actually a great segue to one of the other things I would say that's been a huge advantage was as an investor, both on receiving a bunch of pitches and doing a lot of diligence on a lot of companies, and then also investing and taking board seats with a number of companies, I got to go really deep in the data. And so as a result, 
my first startup, I would say I had no idea what good looked like. I didn't know what good growth rates looked like. I didn't know what good economics looked like. This time around, I feel like I have a very deep understanding of what the typical ratio, you know, what a return on ad spend could Mm -hmm. or should look like and what my unit economics should be if I'm going to spend in different channels. And so that has helped me, again, avoid a lot of pitfalls. It's information advantage I have the second time around. Just from personal experience and on talking with investors in the past as well, it's like one thing that surprises me when we get asked about our growth rate too is that sometimes people don't take into consideration, well, how healthy was that growth? Like how much did you spend to acquire that growth? And after the conversation, I'm like, wow, I'm surprised that that wasn't asked because growing 30% month over month, or if you're spending way more than you're getting in revenue, that's not as healthy as maybe you know 10% month over month, but you're doing it in a very healthy and uh, scalable way. Yeah, that's such a great segue. So the last thing that I had decided this next time around was that I was not raising venture capital funding and that I was going to self-fund and grow a very healthy business. You know, I think once you take venture capital funding, the pressure to grow is on and you have to commit to a certain timeline for growing and a certain rate of growth and a certain rate of spend, which doesn't make sense for all companies. And I also know once you take venture capital funding, control and some economics. And so, you know, I don't know that that will be my position forever, but at least in this moment in time, that is my stance. Well, that's really cool. I know we're basically bootstrapping it over here as well. And it's definitely been helpful for us to grow at Trend. So I know we're going to cover a lot more about your experience investing in other brands and stuff like that. But one thing I'm really curious about as well, before we jump into all those topics is We didn't even really cover your tech experience. I was in the tech industry. Is there anything that you kind of learned from your experience working in tech that you kind of translated over to working with whether it's other brands or your own brand, Little Rituals? Yeah, well, I mean, so I mean, I built the website myself. Right now I am for Little Rituals. And actually, part of my motivation with Little Rituals, I'd initially thought I wanted to teach my daughter to code. And anytime I've wanted to learn a new programming language, I've always had to treat it like a project. And so it's kind of like, all right, what project are we going to do? And the tea company emerged out of that. So practically speaking, I feel like learning how to code is such an important skill. And these days, there's so much software, like we're built on top of Shopify, there's tons of plugins and add-ins, as long as you know a little bit, you can get really far. For building out a lot of ideas. So that definitely helped and has saved me a lot of money in getting started. And then with my companies, I think the fact that I've managed product and engineering teams before advise a lot in that department as people are building out product and engineering teams. And then on the people side as well, I haven't had to use any outsourced development resources, but I know great UX designers who specialize in different areas. And so I feel like a lot of what you do in venture capital to be helpful to your portfolio companies is have a network that's, you know, one call access or taking all the knowledge you gain from working with hundreds of companies to say, oh, you need a mobile engineer to help you do this thing. Like here's the guy or gal and for SEO, you need this person. And so, yes. That's great. I mean, it's always good to have that, you know, Rolodex kind of 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 people ready to go and that are lined up. So circling back to your experiences, kind of doing investing and stuff like that, you've worked with a lot of different brands. What is something or maybe more than one thing that you've kind of learned that as you've worked with these brands that some of these founders or even people on the team kind of miss? Yeah. So 
One of the things that I'm always hyper-focused on at the early stages of investing is non-paid acquisition strategy, but he can put money into Facebook. But I get really excited about companies that have figured out something that scales or is replicable on the non-paid side, whether that's a community strategy or a content strategy or like a physical event strategy. Like I've seen all sorts of creative things that founders have done, but almost all of my successful companies have had really healthy, like 50% plus non-paid acquisition in the early stages, almost all the way up till $20, $30 million. One of our investments at Pritzker Group was Dollar Shave Club, which famously was 90%. I mean, they did viral videos. Michael Dubin was a stand-up cop. He did those funny YouTube videos all the way up until a very significant revenue number. Almost all of their growth was driven by non-paid acquisition. For me, non-paid acquisition, it's Partly that, and then it also shows up in your repurchase rates, like your repeat rates. And so I just have a preference when I'm investing, both personally and through Pritzker Group, it was always about finding businesses that had high repeat rates. And for me, anything above a 50% 12-month repeat rate was really good. And then obviously, if you have multiple purchases, even better. Loyalty programs like subscription programs can help with that. But Biggest things I saw were people focusing way too much on paid acquisition. And then often I would see these charts where they'd be like, oh, our paid acquisition is here today. And somehow it's magically going to go down in the future. It's the opposite. (laughs) It's so much more expensive. So that was probably one of the biggest things I see in decks. Like, ooh, yeah, if your unit economics are not working now. That's really insightful and that's helpful. So, you know, you talked about repurchases being a really big indicator for brand success. And I know you mentioned like loyalty program as well, something that's creative out there. What are some other things that you kind of look for or you kind of see as well that might indicate that a brand's going to be successful? I actually have a, a list of metrics. Some of them you probably have already heard about. Like I looked at unit economic and whether a company was growing in a healthy way. And for me, my target threshold was three times lifetime value over CAC, 50% plus organic acquisition. I looked at return on ad spend as well. Basically, what was your ad payback rate? And I wanted to see that under 10 months. What else? I looked at overall capital efficiency. So one thing that can happen at the later stages and you have a more complicated PL that you're looking at is people can hide their marketing costs in different places, but the revenue numbers don't lie and your cash burn doesn't lie. And so I usually like to see a four to one ratio of revenue dollars to cash dollars burned. Simple way to check and see whether it passed the sniff test. What else? Three times year over year revenue growth. It's a really fast revenue growth because when you're investing venture dollars, It's a little bit different game. Like the growth rate needs to be at a certain rate to make the kind of premium valuation you get, which is very different than if you're bootstrapping. You know, these are not necessarily metrics for bootstrapping a business, but if you want to raise venture capital dollars, this is what I looked at. Net promoter score. So anything 50 was like the bare minimum for a net promoter score that I would look at. But 60 plus, I mean, what I was seeing was most things was investing in had 60 plus net promoter scores. We focus on software here, so we're not super in the weeds and, and we learn as we go through the podcast. But how do you pair all that up as well with, say, the logistics and operations of a direct-to-consumer company? So, hey, the growth is super healthy. Everything makes sense here. But I think, you know, this on the logistics side, like this manufacturer is going to be a problem in the foreseeable future or something like that. Is that ever a concern or the unit economics? Like if they're there, there's always a solution kind of thing. Yeah. 
I generally find that if the unit economics are there, because when I'm looking at lifetime value, I'm looking at margin dollars versus margin dollars, lifetime value. And so it kind of takes into Mm -hmm. account all the costs. And if you have a three times ratio, there's a little bit of wiggle room there. So let's say you need to switch manufacturer and your cost margins changed. You would have a little bit of buffer. So unit economics is a little bit of stress, but there is a lot of qualitative. It's a great point that there is a lot of qualitative on under competitive modes and differentiation and manufacturing can be that. So there's nuance. There's a lot of quantitative that I just walked through, but then there's also a lot of qualitative too. That's that's really insightful. Well, you just dropped a lot of great stuff for the audience that's listening. I know I was like over here, like a sponge absorbing all that information as well. So talking about the unit economics making sense as well. So when a brand gets started off, obviously, you know, they're probably not going to be right there doing a three to one ratio for LTV versus customer acquisition costs. So what are some of the, I guess, benchmarks in terms of like how long you've been in the market that you kind of see brands start to reach that level for being able to have that sustainable growth? Yeah. So I think that there has to be a reason to believe that the unit economics can get there. So the CAC, like I said, the CAC is not the place where you're going to see that go down. Like that doesn't generally get better over time. But I have seen some really early stage companies do incredibly well on their unit economics because they've had a ton of word of mouth or a ton of organic growth. But on the LTV side is usually where you expect the numbers to get better for an early stage company. Because when you're manufacturing in super small quantities, your margin is going to be really low. And logically, you know, like, so usually what I'll see seasoned founders do is model that out to say like, okay, our unit economics right now are one times or two times, but that's because we're only manufacturing like a thousand products a month. If we go to 10,000 products a month, then we get double the margin and our unit economics therefore double or repurchase rates. Like right now we're only selling in one category, but we know our customers want to also buy these three things from us. And so our repurchase rate or average order value will increase as I add these products that customers can buy. So those are the two things that I see that are compelling. Don't focus on CAC, but I would focus on like what the story is there. Margin, super easy. Everybody gets that because economies of scale and then adding more add-on products or things you can upsell, cross-sell that should in theory increase the lifetime value. That's great stuff. So I'm sure you've learned so much and you've implemented so much and you really have a strong understanding of what makes a successful brand. So how does that relate back to to the stuff that you're doing over at Little Rituals? Like what are you kind of like implementing and like focusing on there from your learnings that's translating over to the brand that you're building? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd say we're measuring everything. So I'm paying attention to all these numbers and that kind of helps me decide where I want to spend or what marketing activities I want to do and double down it. And it also has kind of helped me decide what channels I want to go into. And one thing I think CPG brands always have to decide is when to go into wholesale and have one category, my supplements, which are heavy. And so shipping is a bigger cost where it may make sense sooner versus the teas are super profitable online. Like I mean, put those into retail or wholesale anytime soon. But so I guess it helps me figure out what the key metrics are that I need to be looking at every day and every week. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. To help manage the business. And you know, you mentioned, and I'm sure you've worked with a lot of brands and they've probably done things differently. And like you mentioned, you look for the creative process as well to see what brands are doing creatively. Is there anything that's kind of stood out that you've seen 
other brands do that might be different from like the typical brand approach that whether you've like recommended that to other brands or even implemented it in little rituals as well in terms of like a strategy? Yeah, I pay a lot of attention to the content and creator strategies behind brands. So I have a belief that there are no nameless, faceless brands anymore. People want to know the story behind the founder, behind the products, uh, behind why they started the company. And it all shows up on Instagram, like where everything is transparent these days. And so the brands that I get most excited about, I have one brand that I invested in that's here in Chicago. It's a company called Curl Mix. It's in the hair care products for curly haired women. And the founder has just been so scrappy and so smart in her content creation. She records videos. She live streams on Facebook. Every Wednesday, she has this thing called Wash and Go Wednesday. And that, you know, it started off and it was probably tens of people, hundreds of people that tuned in every Wednesday. Now, thousands of people tune in and her audience called or her shoppers call themselves curl mixers. And you can see like they're helping each other. They're commenting. And she's just super savvy in how she's built not just content, but a community around the content. I feel like that is how you win in consumers these days is you've got to have a strong content strategy to keep your community engaged. And then some sort of a community strategy to bring people together around your brand. Chromix is one of the best examples that I've seen in a little while, but there are definitely others that I've been tracking, folks that do a really good job. I mean, Glossy is one of the other examples people talk about. They have like a cult-like following in a brand and they've used their community to co-develop products. And-, and the interesting part about that is that it takes patience, but it does pay off big dividends. So like we were saying before, you can acquire a customer on Facebook ads, but then the next day you have to go back and do the same thing. Whereas these are sticky, loyal customers. And when a founder does that and puts their name behind the brand, the story adds up and it adds a layer of authenticity that no other form of marketing can do. So we've definitely seen that as a thread with all the brands that we've worked with and that, you know, given that we are in the creator space and the influencer space as well, not only does it help with the kind of customers that you attract, but who also you attract as a brand ambassador or as an influencer that also wants to be part of the brand. Anyone can put up a million dollars, any brand can put up a million dollars to work with, say, one of the largest influencers out there. But that doesn't mean that that person is going to want to be a part of that mission. And important part is like sometimes those brands actually get to work with ambassadors that are on that level, celebrities that actually just want to do it because they really want to support the brand. <laughs> and, and not everything is a monetary transaction. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you guys just saw oh, Beyonce wow. signed on to work with Peloton, but like there are... Right, exactly. Celebrities have choice these days. Celebrities have choice, but the best partnerships are the ones that come the way you're talking about organically where the brand mm-hmm. and the, influ- the, the influencer is already using the product. The brand sees that in their customer file and it's like, figure out a way to work yeah, more deeply that's, with you. That's really cool. And that's what we're all about as well. You know, at Trend, that's something we talk about to brands who are looking to work with creators is it's really important to like create those authentic relationships and make it like less transactional because it just makes it more likely for people to believe that story. I feel like, you know, it's really easy when you promote something that's inauthentic to your audience. It really can hurt not only your credibility, but also the ability to like succeed on the promotion piece because you can tell when someone's not really as into it, which is I think really interesting. One thing I want to add there that Tanya said, it's like, well, 
the creators have options. But now the, what's interesting is that the brands also have options too. So what that does is that we saw very early in the days, people just trying to make money as an influencer and promoting just about everything. But now people are actually making real side income. And it's like, wait, let me take a step back and actually take this seriously as, as a career. So I often get asked about the authenticity piece. And it's like, look, people are trying to actually make a career out of this. So it's ultimately in their self and best interest as well to promote things that they actually relate with. So it goes both ways. And I think that's why we've seen so much growth in all these areas lately in the past like six months or so. It's been crazy. So connecting back to, you know, mm-hmm. we're talking a little bit about creators over here. And I want to also circle back to talking about your experience in investing in brands and founding your own brand as well. What's some of the advice that you would kind of give to to other founders out there, if you had to do like a quick rapid fire of advice for people looking to like stand out and maybe receive funding. I know you mentioned a couple of things over there as well, but just looking to stand out really. Yeah. No, I mean, the early days, the storytelling is everything because it's not like you're going to have a ton of data to stand out. And so the founders that I would get excited about would tell a story um, and some of it might be, you know, revisionist history, but it, where every single moment in their life or like their life, you know, so many of their experiences led to this unique customer. And that is why at this moment in time, they are the best person to go out and build this company. And so those were like, literally, uh, there would be some pitches where you walk out and you have goosebumps because the founder is super powerful in their storytelling. Those are the types of founders that are very successful in fundraising and can get venture at any point in time, but even at the early, early days. I mean, the second thing I would say is just to get started, like just get started, just start building stuff. I sometimes get pitched by people who are pre-company or pre-like building things. And today it's so easy to get started. I think it's like (laughs) month for Shopify to like get the basic plan. And there are contract manufacturers out there for basically every single product under the sun that you could find to work with. And so with a little bit of research, you can figure out who has minimum order quantities that won't break the bank that to get you started. So like just get started. And then I guess the third thing would be like, again, focusing on that non-paid strategy. So everybody can do paid acquisition. And like, I have no doubt that everybody can find Facebook ad agency to work with them. So the thing that really gets me excited is what are you doing that's not paid? either in the community front or things that don't necessarily scale to like a hundred million dollar revenue company, but that may be you out in the street doing that's really insightful. So I guess my one takeaway from that is that, you know, you don't always have to just run performance marketing to get to that $10 million level. I know you mentioned there's a lot of different ways to do it. And I'm sure you've run into brands that have grown that way without having to pour thousands and thousands of dollars into performance marketing to succeed, which I think is really interesting. And it's just a different way of thinking about it to start off. And like you said, you know, it's it's really easy to start. All you need is probably a Shopify store. You might not even need your own custom email. You could probably just grab a free Gmail or something like that and put it together to start off, but to just really go out and like test the MVP idea. And so as we get to the end of this podcast, I want to ask yeah. One last question from my end about, you know, your experience, which is I'm sure you've seen a lot of entrepreneurs and founders come up against roadblocks and challenges that they face. What are some of the common ones that you kind of see and what recommendations do you have for maybe getting over those challenges and humps? Yeah, tons. I mean, I feel like one of the big things I've seen consumer companies run into is bad cash management, which sounds 
maybe obvious, but because your number one role as a founder is not to run out of cash. But I think when you're running a company, your gap PL, gap accounting PL, and your cash flows are two very different things. And it can get overwhelming really fast because you have payments coming in in some timing and payments going out and a lot of things you have to prepay for. And so I've had several companies where there have been big negative cash surprises because they haven't managed their books well. And so there are two software services that I've had portfolio companies use. One is Bench and the other one is Pilot that I think bring down the cost of having a bookkeeper. But like, I guess my advice is have someone help you with your books. If you can find somebody to cheaply like for a hundred bucks a month, run your accounting for you to just keep you in a place where you understand reasonably forecast, like that is great. But I have seen far too many founders at the early stages and quite frankly, even at the later stages, get into trouble because of bad cash management. Second thing is hire people. And that sounds obvious, but I guess I would say to do that, I think you need to always be hiring. So anytime you're meeting, if you're at a conference or your event, like figure out who the smartest person in the room is or a person you think you could learn from and befriend them. Because if you're growing every year, doubling, tripling. That's a little bit harder during COVID as I'm experiencing some of that. <laughs> no, it's so much harder during COVID. Although I do feel like there's still a lot of like Zoom. And in some ways, I feel like for people who aren't in New York or San Francisco, yeah. because it levels the playing field because nobody's in New York and San Francisco. And even if they are, they aren't doing in-person meetings. So it may have been harder to like have an advantage over a local founder in building a relationship with a mentor 10, you know, sure. 10 months ago. And now it's a level playing field. And so I keep telling that like you can now recruit from true. anywhere. And so that's, that's go awesome take advantage advice. of that. I don't think we've ever really covered the accounting piece as being something that's super important. So I'm glad that you brought that to the table and you brought a few software products that people could try and use and test out to help out with that. So as we're kind of coming to the end over here, I want to ask you, and I don't know, Ramon, if you have any questions left, but I'm curious to know, like, what's, what's next for Little Rituals? Like, what's your big plan over here? Are you planning on, you know, working? I know you mentioned a wholesaler probably for your vitamin product at some point, potentially. So what's next on the roadmap over there? Yeah, so I have like short term things we'll do more teas, more supplements, and some new categories I'm thinking about. And then I have some long term, like crazy visions of like, what would it look like if Little Rituals was a physical experience? And I have this like crazy wine bar shop idea in mind that we'll see when COVID is done, what that might look like. But I've been thinking a lot about like Little Rituals Cafe. Like when I think about what parents, modern parents need, I feel like Starbucks was created as like a third experience for people who work and working professionals. McDonald's is kind of like used to have like the playground playland thing, but it's kind of dirty and kind of gross. And so like, what would a revamp common mashup of those two things look like, but with little rituals as kind of, but other than that, like continuing to grow the brand. That's super cool. I have five now, niece and, and nephews, and they're all around the age of five or so. And I was just thinking about that. My, my question was going to be around that. I'm sure that they'll be all over this. They would love it. So I'm definitely going to buy some for them. And the interesting part is that I could definitely see... So one of them lives in Miami, the other one lives in Puerto Rico, and they chat on the phone for like eight hours a day. It's just crazy. And they drain my their dad's phone. 
you know, their mom's phone, battery. So I'm sure they could schedule some tea times with each other on FaceTime. And I'm going to buy it for them just for that. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, tea party. I'll let you know how it goes. I'm going to send you some, some pictures of it. Awesome. Sonia, so definitely, it's been definitely awesome them. having you on the podcast to talk about your experience as a founder, your experience as an investor, even your experience in tech and how it's all kind of come together to create little rituals and what you're kind of doing next. So as we end the podcast over here, I do want to give you an opportunity if you want to share with the audience where people can learn more about little rituals, buy your products, maybe connect with your brand, connect with you even after this podcast. Yeah, thank you. So you can go to littlerituals.kids.com www.littlerituals.kids.com and our Instagram handle is the exact same thing. So find us in either of those places. We're active. You message with me responding. So yeah, it's it's been awesome having you on the podcast over here. Thanks again so much for joining us. It's been an awesome episode. I know I have learned a lot and I'm sure the audience will as well. And so for everyone that's listening out there, thank you again for listening to the DTC pod. This has been another great episode. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to drop us a quick rating and subscribe to the podcast to let us know that you're enjoying it. And we will see you next time on the podcast.